Hello and welcome to the very 173rd episode of the Shut Up and Sit Down podcast, the podcast all about board games, board games, and the people who love board games. My name is Matt Lees, I'm joined by Tom Brewster. Hello, my name is Tom Brewster. And on today's episode of the podcast, we're going to be talking about one game that we played last week, but it's a big game, big game, a lot of colours, a lot of pieces. That game is Bitoku from Devere. But before we get into that, what, what have you been up to, Tom? You've been hiding any cakes under any floorboards or anything like that lately? None cakes under none floorboards. Uh, but I have been, I've been in the lands between, Matt, but we can't talk about that on this podcast. We've got to reserve no. that for our secret bonus video game podcast. We don't have yes. one. But it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. You could, you could listen to that podcast if you just found me and Matt in a pub. And then yes. you'd be an audience of one to me and Matt rambling about how we've not really done enough of anything until you we caught you listening and then you'd be an audience of none so watch your backs and keep on listening have a lovely podcast so bitoku is an absolutely huge and visually stunning board game from devere who we've previously really enjoyed their designs we've enjoyed paris la cité de la lumière we've enjoyed silk we've enjoyed the red cathedral and these little small box delightful little compact things and by contrast, Bitoku is this huge and super decadent Euro game uh, in which players are playing these forest spirits trying to replace the current head honcho of the forest, represented by a sort of deer with magical antlers. And the way that we're doing this is by churning out a shed load of points, by doing loads of woodland activities. And I could get into all of that by explaining the dragonflies and the spirits, or I could talk about how you build buildings, or I could talk about how you walk up the, the path to ascension. You have all these different systems, and you can have a dabble uh, in every single one of them, and you could interact with all these different things in all these different ways. And in our play of the game, Quinn's compared it favorably to Gagong, another Euro game mm. where you're doing lots of little dabbles. It also looks a lot like Gagong. In, in it's just the, 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 the color palettes, uh, some of the styles of the mechanics being used there. It was slightly uncanny to certain degrees, but I think that was mainly because we were thinking about also playing Gagong yes. on that same day. <laughs> so I think it was, rather than us being like, this is just like Gagong, it was just, it was sort of slightly spooky. We had Google um, on the But it does have it does have that a lot of similar styles of um, of moving around and doing stuff. Yeah, if you're looking at this board, you can sort of see lots of distinct areas that kind of have their own mini games. But those mini games are sort of a bit more rigid, and I think they link to each other in more ways than in Gagong. I've not played Gagong. I'm just going off what I've heard people think about it. Um, but instead of getting into all those systems right now, let's just talk about what the sort of the main structure of the game is. You have these four phases and three of them are basically just admin. So you can skip all of that and get straight to summer, which is the part of the round, which is the interesting bit. To be fair, though, that's a lot like real life, right? <laughs> like yeah. summer is, is like, yeah, life is OK. And then the rest of it is like, I guess I'll get just I guess I'll get ready. I'll do my taxes. <laughs> and then the summer's back and you're like, yeah, I'm alive. You sound like you're locked into the body of like a 12 year old, very, very excited for summer holiday, like talking about their exams as taxes that they need Nothing to do. Nothing quite like it. Nothing quite like it. You know, <laughs> like you don't get that. We don't get like, unless you're a teacher just having like, yeah, it's the summer now. So you just get to stop doing everything for three yeah. months, two months. I can't even remember how long it was. It's been that long for me, Tom. It was a whole year summer holiday. What? Back in back in my day, it was summer holiday went all year long. Back in my day, you got 
three hours and you were happy. You got You're three hours of winter gruel. Um, but, <laughs> but let me talk about uh, how these summer phases work. Uh, so in the summer, you have three options. Uh, option one is play a card from your hand of yokai spirit cards. And they give you a bonus, but they most importantly let you unlock the little die that's placed next to them. And that's good because the second action is to place that die onto the board. And this is the action that sort of defines a lot of the game. You place a die and you take an action based on the sort of strength of the die that you just placed. So a two might just get you one or two little resources, but a five or six might get you a fistful. Uh, and crucially, these dice are never rolled. So you increase their pips using these little amulet tokens you pick up. So slowly they're getting better and better throughout the game. You can almost think of them as like workers that you are improving the strength of as the game goes on. And it's a very sort of like crisp little system. I really quite like that. Um, and crucially, the thing that's important about these, these numbers getting bigger is not only do you get to take better actions, you can only place one of those dice if they are equal or higher than the other dice in the area. Meaning that over the course of the game, you have this sort of slow arms race of the dice getting higher and higher to block off spaces and to increase your own power on the board. But what would stop everyone getting sixes? Well, let me tell you about the third option, Matt. You've played the game. You know what it is. It's crossing Dude. the river. Where you can, cross the river. You got to cross the river to get the juice. Uh, you take your little dice and you take it from its worker placement spot and you, whoop, you hop it across the river to gain a spicy little bonus, like a new card or a new different kind of card. Or You've got to pay the ferryman though, right? You've got to pay the ferryman. <laughs> pay the ferryman. And it's, it's basically, it's a kind of a taxation system that I'm behind. And the fact that like, <laughs> everyone gets like taxed about the same, but then the sixes, yeah. the, the 1% of the dice, <laughs> get, get super taxed they big do. time, right? They get mega taxed big time, thus freeing up the spaces for other people to go and have a little go at. What Matt's kind of referring to there is that when you move the die across the river, you lose a pip. So your die go down in their strength and a six super taxed all the way down to a three, which is very punishing. Gosh. Yes, it's brutal. Um, so you're getting something, you're getting something cool, but you're also erasing a lot of the work that you put in previously. But the reward for this action is another card. Those are the cards that you play as an action to unlock a dice to then place the dice on the board. So the loop sort of feeds back and it gets this sort of despite this huge sprawling presentation that simple middle loop of the game play a card unlock a dice place a dice cross the river makes Potoku feel strangely elegant yeah yeah I, I think so I think when you ignore everything else going on that's definitely the case um, <laughs> and, it, and, <laughs> and it's it's deeply satisfying as well to, to see this this small shop of um, potential cards that you can buy because when you're going through these cards and placing them down, you are basically going through your own deck. It's just your deck is very small, but you still mm. are kind of cycling through a deck. And the fact is that each round, you only have three potential new cards that you can get. And one player could ostensibly take like two of them, right? Yeah, potentially you could have someone scoop up most of the shop. That's one thing that we found increasingly in Botoku is that that arms race to get those dice super high was really important because suddenly, boom, everything's gone and you don't know what to do with the rest of your turn <laughs> yes exactly like that was very much uh the vibe because i mean beyond this down below the river there were all sorts of other things going on right 
Yes. So you've got all these different options for where to place those dice and collect those things. So you can collect resources, and the resources let you build buildings, which then, then you then put below other worker placement spaces to give extra bonuses. You can go and you can get dragonflies, which don't do much on their own, but they give you a bonus when you combine them with a spirit, where you lock them together and they give you points and bonuses. Instead of building buildings, you could build crystals, and those go on your player board and give you income, or maybe they give you a little bonus when you place a yokai. There is so much going on, and it lets you sort of spec into whichever part of the board you find most interesting. Um, there's even things like these final scoring cards that are right in the middle that we all kind of forgot about because we were so busy going into the, our sort of own little choice system that we were excited about. Um, there's, yeah, the, the fact that you've got like your own player board whereby you can be placing crystals to unlock either bonuses that occur at certain times or at the start of each round, you're getting more income. But then obviously... Even when you're doing that, you're placing crystals on your board to free up these wonderful, sleepy little eyeball <laughs> oh, I explorer characters. Yes. What, what are they called? I think they're called pilgrims. The pilgrims. They're basically eggs with eyes. Yes. Uh, they're very cute. I really like them, actually, a lot. Yeah. A lovely little component design. And you need to have them to either put on the little pathway on your board, which the is... The Toku path. The Botoku... Is that the Botoku path one on your board? Yeah, the Botoku path is the one that you make by obtaining Botoku cards from of crossing the river on the hills. Oh, no, I wasn't even talking about that. I was talking about the <laughs> other... It's not even a path. It's like a, a little garden on your board where you have little... Uh, oh, like the rock garden. stones. The, yeah. And basically, <laughs> you're going to get multipliers at the end of the game. And in, in a way, those little stones that you grab are much like what most games would be. Um, in terms of having end of game scoring cards, yes. In terms of it being like, oh, you know, for every fire spirit that you have at the end of the game, get a point. But then that's multiplied by how many of these pilgrims are connected to that on the little mm-hmm. node based thing at the bottom. Uh yeah. I mean, actually, <laughs> it's like it's it's quite shocking to describe this game because playing it isn't as complicated as as it sounds. But there really is uh, a MacGuffin at the end of every nibble of the muffin. Um, <laughs> It's 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 outstandingly uh, MacGuffin-y. rich in detail, isn't it? Yeah, I think that you're right that there's always like every system is very sort of involved and it's its own thing, but they all branch out from a central core that's very simple to explain. I've really got to praise like Devi's manual work on this game is very very good. This game, despite its absolutely horrifying huge presentation, that is very very intimidating. I read that manual and I felt like I understood almost all of the game and only had to dip back in for a couple of little reference points here and there because the way it's structured is really smart. You have this, you know, it teaches you that about the the core components the cards and the dice and the pilgrims and then it goes and we're going to talk about every single worker placement spot a little bit later don't worry about that now let's just talk about flow and that way of coaxing you in by talking about flow and, and putting that uh, in its own section in the rule book is all the different what all the different forest spaces do you can put that to the back of your mind while you worry about what the game actually is going to feel like to play yeah um and we spent a long time playing this game. I don't want to undersell that it took us a long time to play and it was a long teach. But I could imagine playing it far faster than we did once you understand that flow sort of innately. 100%. 100%. And I think what's interesting about it is that you have got all of these different options about different systems you can engage with and how you can... Uh... You know how you can get points because effectively, you know, it's still it's still very much a kind of get points, <laughs> win game yes. um, situation. But the levels of 
interaction and uh, like I, I found that the levels of interaction on the board were really interesting yeah in terms of everything you did had a, a pretty strong effect on somebody else in terms of yeah you could build a building right by building a building you choose which slot to put it in. You've got limited slots on the board in terms of which types of buildings can even go where. So if you know that another player is trying to go for a specific type of building, just by taking one of those, it's pretty huge because yes. it means even if more come up in the shop, there might not be slots for them in the future. But then also where you put it, it means that every time anyone uses that action, they can choose to get that bonus if their die is of a high enough value to match the requirement on that building. And... Again, that's kind of huge. You do get compensation for that, you know, as the player who who put it down. You do get a little something. But even the process of you doing something because you need to do it, you are making options spicier for other players. And it felt like a lot of the game, more than we understood, and I think it's why the first round particularly was very slow, a lot of the game was less about like, hey, what do you want to do in this big salad of things? And more about what are you going to lock down and try and shut off so that other players mm. can't have it? Yeah, and that's definitely true of that that dice placement system, which is really quite fierce, where you have a very limited selection of spaces that are going to get filled up so quickly. Because there's nothing stopping a player putting multiple dice down as long as they're of equal or higher value. And you can shut off whole areas of the board for, you know, an entire round. But then those spaces then get freed up and opportunities arise when the player takes that die and they cross the river with it. Because now that space is free again, but those spaces are never going to get cleared. That stuff is completely locked off. Which is just so smart. And it's a game where I was really just worried about turn order consistently. Oh, yeah. Which is normally something in Euro games I put to the back of my mind. But here, <laughs> it felt so front and center. Yeah, um, it really, really did. Like, having that turn order grabbing being a really relevant thing and also i remember in the first turn we were confused because it seemed to be that there was an ability that let you like pop out a dice and free it up mm. before you placed a card then we're like but why would you do that it's gonna pop out anyway when you place a card on your tableau but we quickly realized that being able to place a dice immediately before you put any cards on your board at the start of a round was huge and yeah. we were all really getting into that and also the fact that these cards you get, when you're placing them, you're activating the ability of these cards. And as you're getting better cards throughout the game, some of those cards are doing things and activating combos. The fact that, yeah, we mentioned that you get these little Firefly tokens and you combine them with the Dragonfly <laughs> tokens and then you get bonuses. Those bonuses are often kind of mini actions that you just take immediately. Yep. And we found that really that the combo stuff kicking off every now and then it wouldn't be frequently but maybe once twice in the game you'd have a turn where you just go okay so i do this which does this which does this it pops that off there i get this and <laughs> the fact that you could do it in whatever order you wanted meant that you could just have these really wonderfully satisfying turns but more brutally than that because the shops weren't restocking between rounds you know, you, you might have a round where you think, okay, I'm going to try and buy some fireflies this round, or a firefly. And then someone <laughs> takes their first turn, and by the end of it, like, they're all gone. Like, yeah. it's just, you know, somebody just goes, vump, and just snaffles up <laughs> an entire shop before you've had a chance to do anything. I guess fireflies are a next round thing, I guess. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Gotta wait. I, I feel like that was some of the, the core magic source of why it works, right? Yeah. Because otherwise... The first round of the game we played felt kind of slow because we were all just a bit overwhelmed by the options. Mm. But those options really do um, 
get pulled away from you quite rapidly. Yeah. And at that point, the game became very much a case of like trying to optimize your route through a path that was clogged up with other people quite mm. substantially. Yeah. yeah, it very much felt like we all did a little bit of dabbling in the early game, and then towards the late game, we're very much trying to laser focus in on the part that we dabbled in the most. <laughs> because, yeah. But then I think that there is such scope for like real like mastery of this game. There must be like because there's so many little lovely th touches and things that you can do that only become really sort of relevant when you've had a little bit of time to think about them. Like one of my favorite things you can do is because it has this very, very light deck building aspect where you're pulling these cards from these hills and putting them into your, you know, your deck to then draw back up. You don't take many of them throughout the game. But there's a system where if you have a few too many, you can cull them from your deck and you think, oh, that's great. I can just replace my starting cards with better ones. But the better ones have scoring bonuses on them for when you discard them. So there's this real aspect of like, oh, well, maybe I pick this card up now, keep it for a turn, then hope I have it in my hand next time so I can just play it to bin it. But then when I'm playing it, well, I might as well go and get this bonus here and just these trees of like thoughts and ideas just bubble up and you have this master plan in your head that will then get completely slammed by another player because they've seen what you're doing and they're after you. <laughs> yeah, I think that that's like... I think what it does well is that a lot of the time in Euro games when you have a wide variety of angles you can go off in, what that ends up meaning is kind of people min-max, you know, just focus on one thing and go, I'm going to be the lord of uh, dam building or I'm going to be like <laughs> the, the, the queen of berries or, or whatever, you know. But in this... Everything overlaps so consistently yeah. um, that even if they don't intend to, it'll be like, yeah, when I do this, I get to take a firefly. And you go, oh, I really needed that firefly. <laughs> Never mind. But at the same time, like the fact that you have even these cards, you might look at it and be like, well, that's a magical fox card. I want that because I'm collecting that. But it might be that, as you say, there's a scoring condition on it that Tom thinks, well, if I pick that up, I can play it next turn and discard it and immediately yep. get 12 points. So it, it gives reasons for players to be wanting things for different reasons mm -hmm. um, that allows for, I found like quite a consistently high level of conflict for a Euro game, which was interesting. Yeah. Well, not necessarily conflict, but I was very aware of what other players were doing mm. and very hopeful that they wouldn't do certain things and very actively trying to block stuff. I remember one round in particular, actually, where I had specifically... Even though I didn't need it that much, I had specifically taken both of the two dice slots in one column because I knew that that you needed yep. one of those slots to do something that would basically involve you beating me to the punch on something that only one of us could do. Yeah. And I, I basically had sat one of my dice in there and then Quinns had sat another one in. And I was kind of annoyed because I was like, I was quite happy to go and send another dice in there to hold that. But I thought, never mind, it's fine. Anyway, I had managed to like hold off just long enough that I knew that if at any point I had to pass, then that was me out. You, as soon as you pass, you're out for the round. Yeah. But I, I'd stretched out my actions just enough, knowing that Quinns was going now. And as soon as he was finished his turn, it was Tom's go. And Tom had nothing else he could do. So he would have to pass. Yep. At which point I could happily send my dice across the river, freeing up that slot. And then I could use that slot again. Because no, what? Because Tom had passed. Quinns didn't want to do it. I could put another dice into that slot. Happy, happy days. But then Quinn's just crossed the river with that <laughs> dice because that's what he wanted to do. And it wasn't like he was trying to mess up me, but it was just this lovely moment of me being like, oh no, that's the worst thing that could have happened. <laughs> um, but in a way that was like, 
we had this invisible war about this one specific part of the board that he just had no concept of because yes. he wasn't involved in that particular like race. And um, ultimately, and I got to I got to use that space, and I got some lovely movement points, but I wasn't quite efficient enough, so I couldn't just get my little tiny pilgrim to the top of the track. And Matt just about beat me to the punch on that one as well, because I think there's this tiny, there's this sort of very granular level of of planning and interaction that you need to account for if you want your strategy to sort of really go off the rails in this game. And there's by dabbling in too many things at once, I sort of lost that focus on, oh, but that track, if I get up there, I get a certain number of points. But the only way to get up that track is by doing a little bit of a different system. So everything's interconnected. You cannot, you know, you can laser focus on something, but only to to a certain degree. You're still going to have yeah. to dabble in other systems and other players are going to become your worst nightmares in those areas too. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And that was it. The dabble was was real, mainly because of the fact that, you know, I was just trying to do um pilgrims walking on the tracks let it run out of pilgrims it's like well i need to get some <laughs> crystals now to free up some pilgrims or do something else so you end up having to dabble in other bits just a little bit mm. just so you can continue your engine doing what you want to do and i just found that what was lovely about that is it ended up people just stumbling in and being like i'll have that and it was like you know you're collecting like i was trying to do set collection on um on the the little weird path of cards you put next to your yes. board and I, there was like and there kept being ones where I was like, I need that one. I haven't got one of those. <laughs> yeah. And other people just bought them. And, you know, usually if there was a game and there was a shop of six cards, for example, and another player just walked in and went, I don't care. I'll have any of these. I'll have that one. And took the exact one that I needed. And they didn't know they were doing it. I feel like that would be a bad feel because it's like, well, if they were doing it on purpose to stop my strategy, then that would be cool. But as it is, they're just sort of stepping on me and they're yeah. not really knowing they're doing it. But in this, because there's so few things, it's like one in three. Whichever yep. column people go into, because they're not even choosing that directly. They're not being like, I'll have this one. They've already taken the action before it, before they go over the river. And I think that distinction is really interesting because if it was just the shop, like pick one of these three things, then you'd have a situation where someone go, oh, I'm going to have this. And then you go, oh no. And then the other player might go, oh, I don't really care. I'll have this one instead, right? Mm. But they can't choose at this point because <laughs> they've already chosen the actions on the other side of the river. They've yeah. had those actions. They've moved over the river. They know they want one of these cards, one of this type of cards, and there's only one there. So it's this one. So it kind of takes some of the bad feel out of sniping in a way, I felt like, because it's like, well, yeah. it's inevitable. Like, they need yes. that card. They're taking it. That's it. You can't hate them for it. You can't blame them. It is what it is. Water under the bridge, along the river. <laughs> I came away from our play of Batoku very positive i had a really really nice time playing this game despite it i've been putting it off for a while because of how large it is and how huge a teacher i was thinking it would be but i finished that game and and thought that it, it presents something to me that i feel is is very unique in being one of these huge sprawling massive crazy euro games that is incredibly like vicious when played that way it didn't present as something that was going to be a sort of exclusive and and territorial as it is um, but that feeling is is fantastic. It's really it's it's really succeeds in presenting that, whether intentional or not, because all the theming is very forest spirits well, and jolly cooperation. I don't know. I mean, it, it's you know, the the other game they published, Silk, ha had some similar vibes in a way of being like mm. quite a friendly, cozy, pastely thing. But then the heart of that game was actually very mean. Um, yeah. But in a in a delightful and really exciting way. And I think that the thing about that is because it was a small experience with you know relatively few rules it was still tricky and a little bit like 
grittier than it needed to be but it just about pulled it off and it landed and it was a nice little thing whereas with this i I kind of feel like the even though there's a lot of stuff about it that was really satisfying and really interesting i felt like it was the same mentality in a way of having things being like a little bit crunchy a little Mm. bit gritty in the same way that i think the red cathedral is but with those smaller games you can afford to have a little bit of crunchiness here and there but i just felt like the crunchiness was just a bit too expanded and there were it was just it was overall for me just there was a bit too much crunchiness everywhere um <laughs> for something that was quite breezy looking yeah um, i mean this is a it's a gorgeous thing to look at right you know the board is this beautiful verdant green forest with some little details of characters on it and purple flowering around the edge for the score track but then the thing is the aesthetic of it i feel in a way doesn't help because and this is a tough problem i'll come back to a second to what quinn said about this in response to me saying this to him because i think he's he's got a really good point but the components and the color of the board it's like the same palette right so the Mm. player colors like you know yellow and purple and green a lot of the board is like green and purple yeah so it does sort of have a color-based flatness to it i felt like there was enough pop in the 3d components on the board Mm. for me to be able to actually like clock what was what yes um but i still felt like it for something that was quite busy it maybe wasn't it had lost some readability in favor of having something that just looked gorgeous. Yeah. Um, but, you know, Quinn's responded and was like, well, you know, the thing about that, though, is it's kind of annoying when when they specifically make all of the components and bits in a game and then make all the player colors very different because then you end up with something that's kind of ugly because you've got too many colors. Yes. And I think that's true. I think that's true. Um, but maybe actually the, in terms of it still being readable with the flatness is, is a, a, a case in point where the rather strange inlay sections do have a uh, something in their favor because you haven't yeah. mentioned that i think it's kind of weird but interesting yeah you have this this board that's kind of like two layers where you have sort of indents where you can put components like imagine a sort of you know a shop for tiles in a game that shop for tiles where you'd have those outlines for say four or five tiles to go in the shop that inlay sort of that piece pops out and you can then put a new one in depending on the player count with more or fewer spaces depending on um, how many players you're dealing with. And I do think that it's on one side, it's the solo and two player and then it's three and four is the other weird indent side. But those, the fact that you have those inlay pieces, you can kind of see the rough black border of where they go. So you can know they're sort of outlined in a weird way. Yeah. Um, yeah. They, they, they give some context. And I think you were saying as well, the fact that, Rather than usually what you would do on this, you'd have a board where it would be like, there'd be five spaces, but then one of them would have a cross through it and said five or something to to let you know that it's like, you only Mm. use this with five players. By having these little like cardboard inserts that slot into the board and just actually physically have fewer spaces on them rather than just having space blacked out, um, it does make the game a little bit cleaner to view. I was a bit sceptical about the the purpose of it. It seemed a bit pointless, a bit (laughs) silly to have this like modular board. But actually... It did, I think without it, it might have been on the side of being too busy. Yes. No, I can I can definitely agree with that. And there, there's a lot of things where my, my brain was jumping to sort of things about, oh, well, why have they done that? And then kind of realizing the point of it later, which was like, there's a very, the board is structured very strangely. At the top, you have this path to ascension right at the top. Below that, you have the turn order tracks. 
Below that, you have the hills where the, those cards live and the river. And then below that, you have the worker placement spaces. And below the worker placement spaces, you have a huge sort of component swamp where all the rewards that you get for the worker placement spaces are located in this sort of like soupy jungle. And initially, I was really confused as to why you wouldn't have each worker placement space directly next to the reward you get from it. But then I realized it's laid out in a way that it's sort of in columns almost. And then you have yeah. this, the placement spaces are then literally divided by a physical, you know, river on the board to show that crossing the river. And, and it all kind of makes sense, even down to the tiny details. Like there are these sorts of almost arrows. They're not really arrows. It's sort of like a frame on, on the worker placement spaces that kind of point upwards to the river, which has sort of the inverse of those pointing downwards so that you know that like that's how you get to those spaces by kind of hopping across and that they would snap together if you pushed them closer. There's, lo there's loads of really lovely details that show a sort of thought and care that's put into making this game that is so busy, a little yeah. bit more readable even though I still don't think it's ultimately that readable. <laughs> I think it almost lands it, is the thing. Almost. I think it's it's close, but it's it's still, it's too busy. There's just too much going on. <laughs> we had a part of the board that we actually just, I got like six points at the end of the game because there was like a little track of points you could get by being first, second or third that everyone had ignored because everyone had just <laughs> not seen it because it was just, yes. it was in a position that was sort of out of alignment with everything else in a way that everyone just, blanked it and i was yeah. just like i could just get six points for doing nothing here because no one else has touched it yeah and you would have done but there was just a bit too much going on and i you know especially for one of those games where i did start to realize towards the end that actually there was some real elegance in the card play in terms of it not being this one where you're collecting all these cards to your hand but being very carefully buying something so you could use it and then get rid of it for points immediately there yeah. was some wonderful flow to it but it was a bit much, and I feel like maybe if I'd been more in love with the theme, which is very much like, you know, Japanese spirits, and it's quite on the, the softer and cuter side of that. I, I didn't really, I'm not really interested in that as a theme. I didn't really gel with it. Um, and I did, also didn't really feel like it added anything. It didn't feel like thematically it was actually like, it just felt like a thing where there was a different name for everything, you know? It yeah. was, this was the this track, this was the this thing. And, and actually if if i'd felt like there was more of a sense of like them being things specifically rather than just being resources mm -hmm. which they were like you know the fairies and the spirits not the the, the bugs and the spirits yeah. it's just kind of you know that could have been two gemstones you stick together it could have been anything right yeah. um and the fact and... that you and, and then there's also sort of some strange distances in the fact that you pay for those with like sake and and, and wood and jade and whatever and it's like there's there's sort of less of a narrative, I think. I know that made some sense in terms of like, you know, because I know that that's the sort of thing like sake and jay. That's that's sort of like offerings to the spirits. It makes some sense, right? In terms of these being resources that you use to make offerings. Sure. But again, much actually like like Great Wall that we played, um, I f there was an element of like, do there need to be three or four resources in this? Really? Like, you know, <laughs> like, is there enough crossover, a lack of crossover? I, I don't know. I mean, I enjoyed it, but I think, you know, you said it best. If it's just one of these games where you think, do you want to set it up again? Yes. You know? Yeah, that's, I think. It's like, the, I'd the... play it again, but I don't want to set it up. I think you definitely need to have the right group for something like this. It's a game that if you want to get to the, like it's expensive enough and huge enough and enough of a time investment to learn the rules that you want to play it multiple times and having people who are prepared to sit down to this massive efficiency 
puzzle multiple times is kind of what you need. I don't think this is something you could necessarily just bring to a game night and hope that people would sit down to play because the teach alone is pretty ferocious. But I think that maybe it could be very rewarding if you play it multiple times with the same group when you come to the table knowing the rules already. But just the thought of teaching it again is is crazy. So that is Bitoku. I think I enjoyed it. It's not like something that we i shouldn't super recommend it in the same way that i really love the red <laughs> cathedral is a lovely tight little box of crunch um i still think devira want to watch and i think it's an interesting one um it just doesn't quite land the scaling in the way i'd want it to but if you're a yeah. big fan of like crunchy stuff and kind of cute stuff then uh yeah it's not super cute to be fair make it sound like it's like wah, 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 wah. and it's not it's just <laughs> it also doesn't really have bite in a way that i think maybe some, it could have done with for a game that has bite mechanics. there's some uh, there's some pretty gross looking spirits there's some pretty icky large frogs with big old eyes who you know i'd love to keep in my hand and and put on my board to unlock my die um i think i i think i'm much more positive on bitoku than either you or quinn's and i think i know why it's because i'm less jaded with the with with games <laughs> no i think i'm ready to like i i felt like this is one of those games I haven't played that many of these huge, complex Euro games. And I've, I've sort of yeah, skipped yeah. out a fair few times on things like Lacerda games. And I've not fully engaged in those things. The, 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 the most complex games I've sort of ended up playing tend to be Splotter games, which are a very different kind of like oh, weird yeah. and, and, and Byzantine. This is one of those games that I think is, it's so, it's huge and it has a hundred different worker placement spaces, but I, I really enjoyed those cogs turning. Um, and I'm, I, I'm I keen to give well. it a go, but... I, I don't know who I'm going to put it in front of. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, honestly, I liked it quite a lot. I just yeah. felt like I, I was seeing some of the flaws and it didn't, like, it didn't knock me off my feet and wow me. Yeah. If you want to play it again, Tom, we could play it again. I'll yeah! happily play it again. We'll play it again. <laughs> like, because I, I do think as well, like, on a second play, it could be really interesting. So watch this space. Maybe we'll come back and mention it again in a future podcast if we play it again and we're like, oh, actually, oh. Oh, uh, and if we don't, doesn't mean it's bad. We just didn't go. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, how bad can it be when we dedicate a whole podcast to it? You know, it exactly right. I think I think it's enough. it's like it had the potential to be like super super. This is amazing, and it just didn't quite knock me off my feet. But hey, what does these days? You're right. I'm a big ball of jade covered in sake. That's it for this week's Shut Up and Sit Down podcast. We talked about Potoku from Devere. You can find it in the wild. Next week, who knows what we're going to be talking about? Who knows what we're going to be talking about after this podcast? Matt and I normally what? have yeah. a little tiny chat right. where we talk about secrets. Secrets that the public don't aren't, aren't meant to know about. I've hidden coins underneath a table. I've put a cake underneath your floorboards. Oh, I found that. It was delicious. <laughs> what were the little green and white fluffy flecks all over it? They were extra juicy. Oh, it's bad and horrible and I like it. <laughs> Thank you very much for listening. We'll see you again next week for another Shut Up and Sit Down podcast. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.